Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Rob Miller. Rob is a father, husband, entrepreneur, and co-founder of Miller Titterly Law Corporation. Over the last number of years, Rob has become one of the premier law groups working with indigenous communities across the country. He's also an investor and co-founder of a number of different companies ranging from forestry to emerging technologies. I've watched Rob develop as a leader, a father, and a human being over the last number of years and have been inspired by his journey. In this conversation, we talk about different ways of measuring success, how self-awareness and mindfulness have played a big role in Rob's life both at home and in the office, how Rob spends time each morning to design an amazing day, and the lens through which Rob tries to make every important decision in his life. You can find show notes for this episode at natureofwork.co forward slash Rob. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you could take one extra minute and rate and review this podcast, that would be incredible. You can follow me on Instagram at Steve Rio. And if you're interested in learning how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system to help you live life to its fullest. You can find us online at natureofwork.co. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. No problem. Awesome, man. Um, I want to start with just asking you, how would you, you know, we have your LinkedIn bio in the show notes, but how would you describe yourself? Outside of your LinkedIn bio, I'm a lawyer. I'm a businessman. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an executive. Yeah. I'm a human. I'm a father. I'm a husband. Uh, so there's, there, I think there's lots of layers to that, to that onion as, as there is with everybody. But I mean, I think for me, one of, on the professional side, one of the, I wouldn't say it's difficult to reconcile, but it's interesting to reconcile is bringing together. The lawyer, which is, uh, I think, by its very nature, supposed to be somewhat risk adverse, and the entrepreneur, which by its very nature is supposed to be somewhat risk taking. So I have feet in both worlds, and that's uh, it's always an interesting, interesting tension or interesting dichotomy. Yeah, for sure. And I'm one thing I've been thinking about for myself too is is as you've progressed in your career and you know just gotten a little older and things, how how is the relationship between your business version of Rob and personal version of Rob shifted? Like, you know, I feel like when we were younger, we kept those really separate. And I feel like, at least for myself, I feel like those are starting to merge. But do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I actually think in my early days, they were, it was essentially the same pool. I didn't distinguish much between the two, um, for better and for worse. Uh, then you know, mid-career, I found myself almost on two different paths, which never seemed authentic or genuine to me. And I think as I've matured both as a person and, a, you know, lawyer slash entrepreneur slash business guy, they've merged back together again. Like I find myself in the last probably five years living a more what I'd call authentic life on both sides of that equation than I than I ever have. So I, and I'm sure, you know, when we look back at on this in another 40 years, we'll find ourselves, you know, saying there's been a couple of other twists and turns and we've had divergences and convergences of sort of the the personal and the professional. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For yeah. sure. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what your focus is uh, at Miller Titterly, mm-hmm. the areas that you work in? Yeah. So I guess for, for listeners that don't know, Miller Titterly's a Vancouver-based business law firm. Um, that does things a little bit differently. Uh, you know, we focus on connection through values. 
Um, we focus on being the law firm where it's possible to be your authentic self in the office. We don't need to, you know, wear a suit and tie and pretend to be somebody that we're not to please clients. We look for clients that are pleased with us the way we are and we're pleased with them the way they are. Um, which means that we have an interesting collection of people here. Some people internally have referred to us as the, the island of misfit toys, um, which I, <laughs> I love. I think that's, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so, so part, part of my job is to sort of keep us all together and rowing in the same direction and constantly reimagining what our values and vision are here and making sure that everybody is fully engaged, um, you know, enthusiastic about where we're heading. Um, you know, part of my, part of my job, I mean, I, I, I work still as a lawyer sometimes when I do work, I work largely with indigenous communities now, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, one is I appreciate the constant learning. I mean, the wisdom that I, I'm able to hear from some of our indigenous clients. It's, it's wild, man. It's sort of next level stuff. Um, you know, the idea that I, I and we can play a small role in reconciliation and helping address some of the issues that many nations and communities still, you know, suffer in Canada in the modern age. You know, I think that's a, that's a big motivation. So I'm blessed and lucky to be able to do that work and like, I'm really jazzed and enthusiastic about it. Like I enjoy getting up and, and going to work every day. Um, and then the, the business side, like I also find a creative outlet on sort of the strategic plan and the, you know, planning within the firm and then also within a couple of other ventures that I'm involved in, like a little machine learning company and some other things. So um, between, between those three buckets, my, my professional days are full, um, but they're, they're really rewarding. And then I like to think that that's a small component of who I am as a person, because uh, I think as I alluded to earlier, there's still me, the person that I've known since I was born, there's me, the husband, there's me, the friend, there's me, the dad, which is, right. um, you know, an, an incredibly important part of my, of my life. So, um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I'm interested in what you just said there about getting the chance to learn from some of these indigenous communities and, and some of the leaders there. Can you, is there something that comes to mind in terms of something that, I don't know, has impacted you recently with, in your interactions and work with, with one of these groups? Um, so I think along the way, just lots of little drops of really important and, you know, like non-Western, so not the non-Western perspectives, like not the type of perspectives that I grew up with. So, you know, a, a lot more value on sort of the the land, a lot more value on the resources, a lot more value on the cyclical nature of everything. Like the fact that we're not just on like, one path to a destination. And, and all of those things come up in different stories, whether they're sort of creation stories or whether they're stories about what's happened on the land within sort of a certain elder's lifetime. So anyway, like blessed and lucky to hear all of that. And I think if you, if you hear enough of it and you're lucky, a little bit rubs off on you eventually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, not, not that I've worked a ton with Indigenous communities, but working in the social sector and working in all these just various social causes, you, you just get to, you get to see, yeah, you, you, you get to absorb a lot of things that you, I think a lot of people don't, in conversations you get to get into that a lot of people don't get yeah. to have. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, so I spend a lot of time it, you know, in the, in, I guess I'd call it like the intertidal zone between sort of, you know, mainstream Western economy and sort of traditional indigenous economies, like how, how do indigenous nations interact with a large resource project within their unceded territories, right? Like whether it's a mining project or whether it's a pipeline. And, you know, I think as, you know, I think part of this podcast is about business leadership. So, you know, as business leaders in sort of a traditional Western environment, we are inculcated from an early age with all of these ideas about linear, linearity, um, yeah. about sort of like the relationship between sort of profits and success, like how you measure the bottom line. When it, it, what's really interesting is when you start to look at all of these like economic projects through a different lens, you start to understand that there's a whole bunch of different conceptualizations of success, right? And so, you know, uh, if 
for uh, you know TSX or New York Stock Exchange listed mining company, man, like the bottom line is really what it's all about or sort of like projects in their exploration pipeline, like how many ounces of gold do you have in your yeah. pipeline? But if you look at it sort of from a different perspective um, and, you know, perhaps an indigenous perspective, like there's all sorts of different metrics of success. Like, you know, success can be measured by the, like how, how little the project impacts sort of like the land and resources and relationship between land, people and resources. Um, you know, it can be measured by how well you're mitigating like the footprint in order to survive today. So there's all sorts of these diff other different measures of success. And I think as business leaders, I'm not just saying this is a Canadian and Indigenous nation specific lesson. I think it's any sort of multicultural lesson. As business leaders, like there's a huge opportunity for us to always be sort of pushing our boundaries outward and trying to learn as many different ways of thinking and many different ways of measurement as we possibly can. I love that. Um, how did you get involved? I, I don't know if I know this about you, but how did you get interested or, you know, how, what led you to the path to working with Indigenous communities so much? And, and you're, you've become, I mean, you're not going to say it for yourself, but you've become one of the premier groups working with these, with the Indigenous communities in Canada. And um, what led you down that path or how, how'd you get there? Happy accident. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of those decisions were actually made for me in, in my upbringing. So my dad was an educator, uh, worked in northern BC, worked in a lot of schools uh, in areas where the population was predominantly Indigenous. So he moved to a town called Fort St. James when I was in grade seven. We followed him there when I was in grade eight. And so I, I, grew, I was lucky to grow up in a very multicultural town. I mean, Fort St. James back in the 80s and 90s was actually wild. Like for a northern BC, I think what's perceived as a redneck town, and I'm kind of proud of that. I wear that. You know, but what drives a pickup truck. Exactly. I do drive a pickup truck. But, you know, what, what was perceived as a redneck town um, was predominantly indigenous uh, and then split not quite evenly, but the three other main groups were Indo-Canadian, Chilean, and European. So it was a really interesting mix. And so I grew up in a school where, you know, there were 32 people in my graduating class. You know, when you have 32 people, it's not like there's cliques everywhere. So everybody's friends. Um, and had a lot of good relationships that stayed with me sort of through my early 20s, uh, through my, you know, previous forestry career into my legal career. And so when I was in law, I started out at a large national law firm, um, which was a, a fun choice for me. Like it certainly expanded my horizons. Uh, you know, I hadn't spent much time east of the Rockies and all of a sudden I was doing lots of work in Eastern Canada. We were even doing some like climate change work in Europe at the time. But I was there at the large national law firm and I started getting all of these calls from people that I grew up with, many of whom had moved into leadership positions in their own communities saying things like, oh, hey, Rob, uh, you know, we got a call from Enbridge and they want to build a pipeline in our backyard. They're asking us to engage. How do, should we, you know, even start thinking about that? Like I, I hear you work in the sort of like business resources world. Can we talk? And so I started doing a little bit of that work and found that, and this, you know, I think when I was at the large national firm, so many good things about it, so much learning, but it was one of those points in my life where, you know, my, I think, sense of individual was a little bit disconnected from my sense of myself as a professional. Like I was essentially having to pretend some days when I showed up to work to impress clients. Um, and I found that going, you know, back home and working with people that I'd known for a really long time and in a place where sort of I understood the culture, I understood the values, and I really understood what a lot of this new wave of leadership was trying to achieve, which was to bring some prosperity to communities that have lacked prosperity for, you know, well, hundreds of years, you know, that was really important work and something that I like really felt good with and comfortable with. So I, I think that's a little bit of the history. And, you know, it's also a little bit of the genesis of this place, you know, as, as that part of my practice grew and as my desire to take on more and more of that work grew just because it ticked so many boxes for me and, you know, um, at, as my desire to do more of that work grew and the opportunity was there, um, I started to really identify a business plan around it. Like, look, here's this work that is cutting edge legal work. Like if you look at 
I mean, Canada has so far to go in terms of reconciliation and, you know, correcting the relationship with Indigenous nations. Like, we, we have a really terrible history. But if you look at what's happening in Canada, and especially Western Canada, I think it is in a lot of ways really leading edge globally in terms of reconciliation with Indigenous people. And so to be able to do good work, um, feel like you're making a positive impact and do something you believe in, be at the leading edge of sort of any area, that's always exciting. Well, if you start to measure those three things and layer on top of it that given where like the legal framework in Canada around economic accommodation, consultation, um, and, you know, our Section 35 constitutional rights, all of those things mean that Indigenous groups are now, they control the mainstream economy, I think. And when you look sort of like 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future, man, that's only going to be more the case. Like there's no major infrastructure project that gets built in Canada now without meaningful involvement from Indigenous nations. Like that just doesn't happen, right? And so when you look 20, 30 years into the future, anything that happens on the land, anything that happens with the resources in the land, anything that happens, any industry that's based around harvesting of animals, you know, all of that, man, that's all going to be dominated by Indigenous nations, and rightly so. So it's like a shift from like Jimmy Pattison owning everything to Indigenous nations owning everything. Um, and I think that's a good shift. That's a healthy shift for Canada and not one that we should be afraid of. Like it's one that we should embrace. And so, you know, the business case started to emerge where if that's where I think Canada's going, and I'm confident that that's where Canada's going, and if I feel really good about doing this work, and if I feel really good about the relationships that I have with my clients when I do this work as opposed to, you know, sort of other types of work, well, why not, right? Like, like the business case is there and got to a point at the national firm where I think their business plan was really built around working for the large pipeline companies as opposed to sort of the you know, the indigenous nations up and down the pipeline corridors. And, you know, that that was a sound business decision for them. They're doing just fine. Um, but it wasn't the business decision for me. And I saw this other opportunity where there was an opportunity to sort of bring this idea of, um, you know, a values-based law firm where we get to work with clients that we care about and that we believe in. Um, we get to show up and be our authentic selves. We get to feel like we're doing sort of good and helping build prosperity in areas where they need prosperity. And on top of all of it, there happens to be sort of a, a very good business proposition because like I said, I mean, indigenous nations over the next, you know, two decades are going to control the Canadian economy. You know, right. I think my view is they already do to a certain extent and that's only going to grow. Like I think own source revenue from land development, from resource development, all this other stuff is only, is inevitably going to lead into leadership role in, you know, technology, leadership role in, you know, machine learning, you name the industry, right? right. Yeah. That's super interesting. Uh, I'm interested how, well, two, I guess two, two things. One is how do you as a white guy going into these communities to work, build trust with these communities? And also I'm just interested how, how do, how does an, in, an, an indigenous uh, leadership group look at you and vet you differently than you've noticed, say, a Canadian white group would like is there a different set of values they're looking for from for you or is it pretty similar or is it uh well I mean like I think the the one thing I know is that every every indigenous nation and every you know indigenous community has its own set of values they're as unique as any other sort of right. like community in the world so I don't go into any engagement with any preconceived notion of you know how I'll be evaluated I think right. my perspective with indigenous communities is very much the same as a non-indigenous client. I show up, I show up as myself. I be, you know, as honest and candid as I can about sort of the, you know, what I see is the, the issues and the solutions and the opportunities, uh, and, and take it from there. You know, as a, as an outsider going into communities, I, like I'm, I'm fully aware of that. Um, you know, and in some ways when I go in, uh, and again, depends a lot on the community, but in some way, in some communities, when I go in, I will wear sort of the the history of racism that, you know, that Europeans brought with them. And I understand that and I'm good with that and I acknowledge that. Um, you know, so I think the way I approach, uh, you know, a new engagement with a, an Indigenous community, like, man, I'm lucky to be there. I'm there to learn. Um, and if that's all that happens and, you know we actually don't get hired or don't end up doing any work, that's fine because I've still had a, like been lucky to have a really awesome experience. But 
So, you know, approach it the way I approach almost any other engagement, like go in humble, go in hoping to learn something. And if there's an opportunity to do some good work together that comes out of it, that's fantastic. And to your point, if you're being authentic from the beginning with in how you show up in business in general, that you don't need to worry about being one thing for one person or one thing for another. No, that's right. That's kind of the beauty of a values-based practice or a values-based life. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I'm interested to just ask you about your development as a leader. Cause I, so I've known you for multiple years and, um, Rob and I are in a peer group together. So we have the chance to see who we really are on a regular basis. And I've really seen someone who takes personal development really seriously and takes how you show up in the world really seriously. And also just around, you know, you've been really head on with 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 mindfulness and with really learning more about yourself in the past few years, both in business and in your family life. But I'm interested um, what sparked that for you and and what's that path look like? Yeah, I, I mean, again, just kind of like the, I guess, consistency between your professional self and your individual self and how that can sort of, you know, diverge and converge at different points. You know, I, I think we all go through periods where we're a lot healthier and a lot more grounded than other periods. And, you know, so I'll reach back probably seven years ago, six, seven or eight years ago. Like I was, I was finding that, uh, I was having a really hard time coping. Um, and when I, when I look back on it now and you never notice these things when you're in it, but when I look back on it now, like I was a very unhealthy person uh, largely sort of by my own doing. Um, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't exercising. Uh, I was living a, you know, like a, a much less healthy lifestyle, but also, and I think this was the the biggest part, I was really like reactive and full of blame. You know, like I, I think now when I look back, uh, you know, I was in a very good spot. Like, I mean, it's hard for any of us ever to say that we're not, we're part of the, you know, one top one one thousandth percentage of people that have ever lived in terms of like the access to comfort, the access to sort of resources, the, you know, all, all of that stuff, the access to healthcare. Um, but I think I felt like life was too hard and I was full of blame because nobody around me could ever do anything well enough. And, you know, I felt like uh, you know, the world was imposing all of this stuff on me. Like I had to pick everything up and move it myself. And I think I was lashing out at people that I cared about. Um, you know, I was not taking care of myself and it was all starting to come to a head. Like that sort of weight eventually makes you sick. So found this is at a time when you were your business, you were militarily was already existed. Yeah. Yeah. And we were doing well, you were doing well, like, so outwardly things are going great. Yeah, and, no, and you're and you're just starting to feel more and more bottled up. I think that's right. Like you know, our our story at the time in the market was a good one. Um, you know, much like it is today. I mean, we were one of the fastest growing companies in Vancouver. We were, you know, doing all of this really interesting work. We had really great people in our office and a lot of alignment around values. Um, yet there is just this latent dissatisfaction and need to do more, better, more quickly. If that makes sense. Um, and when we couldn't do that, like, uh, yeah, a, a lot of blame. And, you know, I think we have a friend, Cam Laker, who has a really great saying, and I don't know if he came up with it himself or whether he, he borrowed it from somewhere, but we'll give him credit for it here. But it's, you know, like getting, getting bogged down by minor inconveniences, right? You know, or minor irritations, I think is what he calls it. You know, so I was completely bogged down with minor irritations and blowing all of them out of proportion. So... I w- th- my first, I think, cry for help was actually a uh, a business coach. So a guy that had a guy that used to be the CEO of a really really large uh, uh, professional services organization and engineering firm. And so I reached out to him, and I was hoping for him to give me some business coaching advice because I thought, oh man, you know, the root of all of these problems is that. I just like, I can't figure out how to bring everybody in line and come on. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, so this yeah. guy is going to be like the panacea for it all. He's going to solve everything for me. Right. Um, and I started talking to him and to his credit, you know, and I, this is probably one of those, like, I think defining moments in, in my life is he said, well, you know what? Like, yeah, I can help you on the business side, but I think really 
you could probably use some coaching on like the mindfulness side, some coaching on the reactivity side. Um, and so he put me in touch with- Was mon- that just his intuition? Had he witnessed you- being upset like or was he just was that just his intuition about yeah i think i think it was i was probably in the middle of a rant about the state of our business you know oh, like yeah, going okay, on and yeah. i think it was it was his intuition but i'm sure for yeah. somebody that was alive to the issues and had sort of like lived through leadership for yeah. three or four decades like you know i think he you could identify it pretty quickly so um so he he put me in touch with a uh, a mindfulness coach it's not your traditional mindfulness coach um you know he he's more of a blend of science, philosophy, spirituality, and practicality. So it was almost like a, uh, it was almost like mindfulness and spirituality with training wheels. So, you know, not so much that I'd hop on and get out of control, fall off and get scared and never come back, you know, like the training wheels were pretty strong. So it was good. It was like this entree point to mindfulness where I started to learn a little bit about the advantages of sort of turning off reactivity to sort of separating your reaction from the stimulus to start to understand the science of neural pathways and sort of how if we let them get too deeply grooved, we're never going to get out of them. Um, and to start to experiment with, you know, some of the elements of spirituality that come with a mindfulness practice. Um, so I spent a couple of years doing that and getting more and more into meditation, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, and then sort of easing my way into some of the slightly deeper elements of mindfulness. But uh, but taking a lot of those tools is, and using them to improve how I show up every day, using them to improve relationships with people that are close and value to me, valuable to me, and also help using it to improve my relationship with myself, like the whole idea of, you know, you should forgive yourself like you forgive everybody else. Mm. Like all of those things, man, they've been such a such a powerful tool. And I am surprised that I survived as long as I did as a leader without them. Um, and I think for any leader of any sort, whether it's <laughs> Girl Guides or sort of a Fortune 500 company, uh, in today's day and age, man, like there's such powerful tools out there, the more we understand about our brains. Even, you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example, like a really practical example for me, and this doesn't necessarily go to business leadership, but it goes to sort of, I think, functioning as a, as a professional in, yeah. in, in a busy world. So when I, when I do work on the law side, I spend a lot of my time negotiating. And um, if you're a negotiator, one of your business biggest weaknesses is always going to be your triggers, right? Like if anybody can ever get you triggered, you're, you'll make mistakes, you'll say the wrong thing, you'll position something the wrong way, or you'll do something unproductive, right? And, uh, you know, there's no doubt we all have triggers. I have, I have plenty of them. Um, and I was in a particularly tough negotiation with somebody on the other side that was very good at sort of pushing my buttons and sort of, you know, identifying my triggers. And this was early in my sort of like my mindfulness uh, training. And one of the things that we were working on at that point in time was just all of all different sort of breathing techniques and understanding a little bit of the science of, of breathing. And if there's any biologists or kinesiologists out there listening, they're probably going to say I'm butchering this science. But, you know, as I understand it, part of like the breathing uh, techniques and mindfulness is anytime you can really get your diaphragm moving, you're moving your body out of fight or flight. Like if a cougar or a bear or a mountain lion's chasing you, um, you don't have time to stop and make sure that you're breathing deeply and your diaphragm is engaged, right? So if you're shallow breathing, it's a lot easier for your body to stay in fight or flight, which is when you're releasing adrenaline, when you're sort of just in survival mold, when you're devoting energy, not to your brain, but to your sort of extremities and things. And that's when you make poor decisions. Um, but if you're able to sort of move your diaphragm in times of stress, so really push down and, you know, focus on the expansion and contraction, you actually force your body out of fight or flight. Um, so I, in this, I just remember this moment where it kind of came together. Like this was the first time I really, really, really saw the business value of mindfulness where there's this guy on the other side of the table doing his best to put, you know, to push every button and, you know, engage every trigger that I have. Uh And, you know, I think 
old Rob would have reacted poorly, but I started moving my diaphragm and it was amazing actually how even that simple technique, like just separated my reaction from the stimulus. It let me like take a pause and bring a whole new perspective to the table. Um, and I, I mean, that's not, you know, it's not a super profound moment, but it was the first time that I saw like the practical advantage of this yeah. stuff. It's like, okay, there is this, um, you know, melding of science and spirituality out there. Like there's a reason why a lot of sort of like belief systems are built around sort of mindfulness and meditation and those things. Um, it exists for a reason. And this is, you know, a little bit of evidence of that reason. Yeah. Like we're just such better performing human beings if we're able to like turn off our primal brain and turn on our modern brain. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how often people people in the mindfulness community talk about mindfulness in a bubble of without explaining how immediately practical it is in your life and it yeah. there's a spiritual component to it and i i i'm a i'm a big proponent of that but it's so practical like basic things like you just described they they just have an immediately tangible impact on both your how you feel and then how you show up which impacts the outcomes of your experience right? absolutely yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty wild that way what kind of practices do you have in place for yourself to keep you grounded to, I don't know if it's on a daily basis or a weekly, whatever, but how do you set yourself up for success in that way? Yeah. I'm, I mean, daily meditation is definitely part of it. You know, like in an ideal world, I'd have half an hour or 45 minutes to sit down and go really deep. Um, but that's not on the table every day. And I think one of the big principles behind mindfulness that I try very hard to embrace is sort of like acceptance and I accept that I don't have 30 to 45 minutes every day or, or that, that, that's actually not true. I do have it. I just choose not to make time for it on a lot of days because there's other competing pressures and I get other things out of satisfying those. Um, but so meditation is part of it, whether it's a chunk of time or whether it's just little windows, whether I can squeeze in, you know, like five minutes here, five minutes yeah. there. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, as easy as taking two minutes in between meetings or in between phone calls just to do a little bit of breathing. And I find that just like turns the temperature down. So that's a big part for me. Um, another thing, and this I think comes out of some of the mindfulness training, but another thing that I've really learned to embrace over the last five years is what freedom means for me. So one of my underlying values, like the things that I care about the most and that I need to have to be happy is a sense of freedom. Now, I used to look at that and I would think of freedom in like this sort of uh, pursuit of pleasure sort of way. It's right. I can't have any shackles on me. I need to be able to pursue whatever I want to pursue. I can drink as much remote. as I want or I can exactly. do what I want. Like, yeah. yeah, these kind of external. Yeah, it's kind of like this Dionysus mentality, right? right? Where, right. you know, like. Hedonistic. Yeah, gonna, exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so that used to be how I would interpret freedom. And so anytime anything got put in my calendar, I'd be like, man, that's infringing on my freedom. Anytime I had to be somewhere at any point in time, anytime I had to deliver something by a deadline or anytime I found myself, you know, in a relationship of any stripe with rules, right? And I'm not, Steph is my wife, Steph. I'm not just talking about sort of my relationship with you, just so we're clear on this. I'm talking about any relationship, any relationship where there was some expectation coming out of it. I'd stress about that because it's, man, that's, infringing on my freedom. I think what I've realized is that there's more freedom in rigor and routine than there is outside of it. And I think, you know, I can think back to previous versions of myself where I'd be man, like, man, that sounds so militaristic and I hate that. But in order for me to survive today and, or in order for me to be my best today, I need to stick to certain sort of practices and certain routines so 100%. meditation, but I need to spend time in the morning before I do anything else to think about, um, what I'm really grateful for today. So I like focus on the four main areas that are important to me right now. So, you know, obviously my wife, obviously my family, obviously work and myself. So I make sure that I spend some time every, every day, at least on those four things figuring out, you know, what I'm grateful for. So inside of those areas, thinking specifically, what, yeah. what can I be grateful for inside of those areas? Yeah, yeah that's exactly. That's really interesting. I never yeah. really thought about actually looking at the areas of your life and saying what, because sometimes work is pissing you off, but 
what can I be grateful for here about work yeah. right now? Yeah. And I, and I find, and it's, that's neat. Yeah. And it's, you know, in, in some ways it's almost like simplistic, right? Like, you know, the, the uh, you, there's a, a whole gratitude industry, which started with Hallmark and probably pisses us all off at some point in time. But, you know, the, just the idea of putting yourself in the right mindset, right? Like of learning to think positively about things that are important to you as opposed to negatively. And as Cam would say, focusing on the minor irritations. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think that's really important. So I need to do that. I, I've done a bunch of work to build out my concept of my best day. Like I know when I have really good days, what their content is, like what, what's, what are the ingredients for a good day? And so in the morning, like before I do anything else, after I do my gratitude, I'll map out like what it is that I'm doing to make sure that I have my best day today. So, you know, of all of those ingredients, what do I pick up and sprinkle into the pot today to make sure that, you know, given the parameters around my day, like what my schedule is asking of me, how do I make sure I make the most of it? So that at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, that's pretty friggin' good. Um, I love I, that. Yeah. I need to manage my to-do lists. So I have, uh, you know, I, I take, I have a running to-do list. I can't use an app for it. I just need to write it down. It's the way I work. So I write down like, you know, a do today, do later, um, and delegate. So sort of left to right, do today, do later, delegate. And my goal is to push as much to the right as I possibly can. So as much in the delegate as possible, as much in the do later as possible, and then sort of, you know, have a very limited do today. And once I've done, oh, and then I also have this thing around like a, the, the heart, body, and mind. So every day I try to map out, and this is part of the best day routine, like, you know, what I'm doing for my head, what I'm doing for my heart, and what I'm doing for my body. So how, to, to improve the, your yeah, wellness like, so, around yeah, this Yeah, so how am I going to sweat? How am I going right. to learn? And how am I going to do something that's just kind, like heart? Like, how am I going to express my love for somebody? Um, and then once I've done all of that, I pull out, and you, we talk about leadership lessons. One of mine is essentialism, like make life as simple as possible because it's too easy to get too complicated. Um, but out of all of that, I pull out what I call my mitt, my most important thing. And it's just like, that's the one thing that if I do it today, today's a success and I'm not going to judge myself. I yes, just nail I it. I love that. Yeah. Man, yeah. you've got a good routine. You're like living the nature of work dream here. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's but, really neat to hear. Yeah. But if I don't do it, man, like the wheels fall off. Yeah. It's amazing how yeah. different your day goes, even if one or two of those things isn't there in the morning, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting in, in thinking about, I love the most important thing because these days there can be a hundred things coming at you, right? And everything could seem important and everybody else wants you to believe it's important, yeah. right? Your inbox wants you to believe everything in there is important. Yeah. And it's easy to get pulled off track. So that's that's really cool. That's one of the most interesting things to me. Like, you know, if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, Rob, are you a people pleaser? I'd have said no way. Like I, I sort of chart my own path and I'm not. But I think what I've learned over the last decade is that I actually really am a people pleaser, man. Like it left to my own devices. And, you know, this is probably why I got into a bad spot in the first place. Like, I want to please everybody all the time, you know, like you never want to let anybody down. You want everybody to think the best of you. It's as much ego driven as it is about yep. anything else. Yeah, um, sure. And part of my daily routine is trying to break that. It's, you know, with the task list and with the understanding what makes my best day and what's important, you really see in there, oh man, like all of me wants to do this. But when I look at it in the big picture, I only really want to do this because it's going to make that person happy and somebody else could do it just as easily. So let's Someone's move. going to think I'm really awesome because yeah. I did this for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's move it to the right on my chart. Um, it, you know, it's towards the delegate or do later, um, or say no, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, and like focus on, yeah, what's really going to like make me have the most impactful day and move the things that I need to move. I love all that, man. That's yeah, that's great. Um, one thing I want to ask you about your 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 firm's done super well. You're growing like crazy. You've you've had some some great financial success. I mean, and but you've always struck me as someone who doesn't measure. You don't measure yourself by your financial success. You, it's almost like you don't think about it at, at much at all, actually. Mm. Uh, or maybe you do. But I'm interested what your relationship with material wealth or or with acquiring things or or having a certain amount of money like. What's your relationship with that? Oh man, I want a yacht and to golf every day as much as the next guy, right? Like, uh, no, I, I think I was lucky in the way that I was raised. Like, I, you know, I grew up in a household where, you know, 
we didn't have a ton of money, but we had a ton of other things and it was just never a priority. Like I was never brought up in a, in with a, an ethos of, yeah, we need that next new car. We need that next new thing. Um, you know, I think the world in general has shifted over the last 30 years where we all define wealth a little bit or sorry, success a little bit more materialistically, but I'm just, I'm, I'm lucky in that, you know, I think in my upbringing, it wasn't a focus. Like we were very comfortable. We had a lot of fun as a family. We didn't want for anything, but you know, we weren't driving the new Mercedes. We weren't doing any of that. And it was never a priority for my parents. And so I think I benefit from some of that value system. You know, when I look at my life now, like, yeah, me and my family and a lot of my friends, like we're lucky to be in this spot where we have all of the boxes ticked, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy is that, you know, like we're very fortunate to not be wanting for much at the, the lower rungs of that pyramid of needs. Um, a new Mercedes doesn't make me happy. Um, like what makes me happy is spending time with people that I care about, uh, doing work that I feel good about that I think is important. Um, you know, more and more it's spending quality time with my kids. So hopefully I can like pass it on and instill some of the values in them that I was lucky enough to get instilled in me. So like it, it's not a priority for me. I think we all, and I, I suffer from this as much as anybody, like we all get sometimes allured by the easy measurement that money is, right? Like I think in the Western world, we really view money as a proxy for success. Yeah. And anytime something is that quantifiable, it's hard not to really focus on it. It's almost like we've gamified life by saying how much money is in your bank account. And the more money you have in the bank account, you're higher your score and you're right. going to get onto the next boss, right? Um, so I think, you know, I'm, conscious of trying to fight that and not really care about those numbers. Um, and I don't quite know how to, how to, how to verbalize this. And I'm sure other people have thought of it and I just haven't stumbled across it really well, but you know, like I actually would love to have a different metric. Like instead of looking at my bank account and see, okay, there's $10 there. I would love to look at a different, a different kind of account and say, well, you know, sort of like, what's the impact you've had and sort of like the legacy that you're leaving? Like what's, the net positive impact that you have on the world mm-hmm. and sort of look at that instead. I don't think we've quite figured, figured that out yet, no. but. That makes sense. Yeah, I was going to ask you to define success, but inside of that response, you just kind of did. You said doing meaningful work, having time for friends and family, doing things that you're passionate about. How else would you say that? Again, it's probably shifted over the years. And so, if, I mean, Steve knows this, but for everybody else, I have two young kids. And so I'm going to talk like every like loser new dad who's totally starstruck by his his children but you know like a, a lot of it, it for me has shifted to like what's the legacy that uh, my kids are going to see that I've left behind you know um we're we're in a world now of like increasing transparency and already incredible transparency like we leave a digital footprint and all sorts of other footprints like it's going to be very easy in the future to piece together what everybody in this era was about like, you know, what their activities were, um, you know, like where they devoted their time, um, where they devoted their resources, uh, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And so I'm really conscious now of every little decision I make, like what's that saying, you know, for me in the future, right? Like, am I, am I on the side of right? Like I'm going to get judged like hell probably from my from, by my kids for driving a truck when I don't really need to drive a truck. I just can't let that little bit of my, my upbringing go yet. But everything else, you know, like uh, a, a lot of how I define success is that it's like, am I, am I leaving sort of like a positive imprint on this world? And, you know, I think. Love that. Yeah. And, and in order to do that, I think this is, and this is part of the, maybe how you create the ecosystem for success. Like I've had to, do some things in my life to keep me on track. Like I've had to set some fences that I need to stay within when I make decisions. And it's actually pretty simple. It's things that I tell my kids that they need to do too, right? Like every decision I make, I need to stop and ask myself, am I being kind? Am I being generous? Am I being brave? Like, am I sort of like taking the right sort of risks? So for me, part of that ecosystem for success is having the, having the right I think what I'd call fences almost to help guide your decisions so that you know um, 
you know, the field that you're supposed to be playing in. Cause sometimes it's easy to forget, right? Especially if you focus on like a life that's been gamified by money, it's very easy to chase 100%. money over here, but that's outside of the fences, man. Um, there's, there's also like this idea of like, what's your psychological food? Like what fuels you and gives you energy? So for me, creativity, connection, freedom, and love come to mind, you know, but sort of like really identifying those. And if I'm pursuing those, like I'm, I'm succeeding. That's beautiful. Um, you're, yeah. you're talking about those instead of talking about money as the core resource, you're talking about love, freedom. Yeah. Uh, and I think creativity that's right. and things, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I think ultimately like taking time to appreciate what's good is part of that. Cause you can be as successful as you can imagine. Like you can be the world's most successful person. And there's lots of examples of this, right? Like very successful people that don't feel successful because they don't actually pause and take the time to appreciate it. So part of success has to be like the self-awareness and introspection to sit down and say, you know what? Can we swear here? Like life's pretty Look fucking good, good man. Life's pretty fucking good. hundred <laughs> um, percent. And, and then ultimately, and, and you, you raised this in a, in a conversation that we had leading up to this, like your concept of spirituality and things like ultimately I think, and I'm far from figuring this out, but I think, um, success has an element of spirituality, like starting to grapple with some of the tougher questions, um, mm -hmm. like existential questions and finding what makes sense for you, right? Like, so for me, and I've only started to scratch the surface on this through some of the mindfulness work, like, I don't know the answers about religion. Um, and I think religion is different than spirituality. In, in terms of spirituality, which I almost see as making peace with your role in the broader universe. Um, like I, I sort of see the main step forward that we all need to take in terms of spirituality is setting aside the ego. Like, I think it's almost indisputable that we're all part of the same system, like all part of this, like bigger thing, like the universe, the cosmos, whatever you want to call it, right? Like we're all made of the same atoms. We're all made of the same particles. We're all this. We have this fleeting moment where we have this ego, but, and who knows what happens after it. But I think for me, and this is sort of the spiritual journey that I'm starting on, I'm trying really hard to erode my sense of ego so that I can appreciate my role in the broader cosmos or universe or whatever you want to call it. So that at the end of the day, like on that last moment, your ego's last moment on this planet, when it's sort of looking at life, you're able to say with some comfort, A, I appreciate everything that's happened, but B, I'm not afraid of the next step because really it's just everything's going to keep on going the way it goes. Mm. Like, so I think for me, success, and I'm far from this, there's an element of figuring out that spiritual element and being able to say, yeah, I'm good with whatever happens. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I love that, man. Yeah. I, uh, Obviously, I've I've talked to you quite a bit about some of my psychedelic experiences, mm. but that that's what's really helped me. I think open up. You know, I look at what my wife un seems to have just understood intrinsically. She's just understood for many years of her life about how we're all connected and how caring for another person is the same as caring for yourself, regardless of whether you know that person. Mm -hmm. um, but through some of the psychedelic experiences I've had, has helped help me see very clearly that there is just one thing that we're all part of. And we're just going through it, like you say, for 80, 90 years, if we're lucky, with, with an ego that separates us from it, and we can observe it the whole time. Mm -hmm. But we're just part of some big thing, like, yeah. you know, a much bigger thing. So that's that's super interesting. So that's what you think of as spirituality. And would you consider yourself a spiritual person? Again, on and off, I'd consider myself as somebody that's trying really hard to become a spiritual person. Yeah, it strikes me that if you're yeah. on a path that you, you, you know, you're talking about being on this path or exploring it, that inherently to me makes you a spiritual person, mm -hmm. right? You're not, I think to me, spirituality, I loved, I mean, I'm going to go back and listen to your definition of that and write it down. Um, I think you said, well, you said finding peace with your role in the universe, which is amazing. Um, and in some ways, it's it's also just realizing that there is something broader than just your day-to-day. -day. There's something broader at work than mm -hmm. just your experience of life on a day-to-day -day basis and all the in transactions that are happening around you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's, 
I, I struggle because it does seem like very sort of myopic and and Western to say sort of, you know, yeah, my role in the broader universe. It's more, in some ways, it's like accepting, and again, it's myopic and Western to say part of a system, but accepting that we're part of this broader system and that, you know, like the the harmony of the universe goes on whether we can hear it or not, right? But, but we're part of it. Yeah. And so there's, there's an element of that. I say I'm not spiritual because I haven't got to a spot where I'm comfortable actually even expressing what that means to me, but I'm definitely at a spot where I'm sort of, I've waded into the waters and they're not as cold and scary as I thought they were. And I'm trying to learn more. Right. What do you see as your responsibilities or role in this life? And I'm sure this will change five years from now, but right now, what is it? Yeah. I mean, for me, like, uh, again, we're all in really fortunate spots where we have resources, we have access to, to people, we have access to tools, we have access to systems, we have access to money. Like, so for me, a big part of my role is to be generous, right? Like is to make sure that, uh, you know, other people are able to feel the benefit of some of the fortune that I have. Um, you know, a big part of, and, and, and that can be, you know, something as simple as charitable giving. It can be something as simple as making sure that, you know, two people that you're lucky enough to have met, like get to meet each other. Um, you know, but it's about making a positive impact on people around you, whether or not you know them. Um, so that's, that's a big focus of my day to day. Another big focus of my day to day, and this is completely like self-indulgent, but is just focusing on being a really good dad. You know, like I'm lucky to have two really interesting, smart, dialed in little people kicking around my house and they're a lot of fun to be around. Um, so selfishly, I want to spend time with them, but it's also about working hard to teach them like the right value systems and give them a little bit of guidance along the way. You know, my daughter just hit kindergarten. So we're in a fun spot right now where her horizons all of a sudden like broadened instantly. Um, and she's like getting all sorts of different perspectives and struggling with her own sort of role in social hierarchies and things all of a sudden, like stuff she's never had to deal with. So being around and being supportive and helping keep her grounded, like that's, that's a big focus. Um, you know, uh, being a good husband is a, big focus of mine. Um, so there's, yeah, there's no end. <laughs> and how do you, how do you, uh, there, uh, there's probably, there's not a direct answer to this, but how do you measure yourself against what you see as your, what you just described as your responsibility? How do you know if you're delivering on those? Um, you know, th I think we've actually talked about this. I came across a quote a while ago that I think was attributed to Hemingway, but if you scrap, like go a little deeper, I don't think it is. It's like an ancient Hindu proverb maybe, but it is, True nobility is not trying to be better than your fellow man. True nobility is trying to be better than your former self, something along those lines. I probably right. butchered it, I but love, that's yeah. a paraphrase. And I love that, right? Mm -hmm. So really, like in terms of how I measure success, um, day to day, it's A, did I accomplish my most important thing? But then like over time, it's like, it, it's really, have I tried today to be better than I was yesterday? Like, have I tried to make myself a better person? Have I tried to leave sort of a, a better footprint? Um, and you know what, if you haven't, don't beat yourself up about it because tomorrow's a new day and you can try again. <laughs> yeah. You can't always win yeah. at, at those things. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of, I think, you know, you talk about your role in, in the universe and I, you can see that as myopic, but I, I think from my perspective is, is that is actually the most universal view in, in that respect, in the sense that you are just, you're one speck of a giant universe. And mm -hmm. to recognize that is really helpful for me. And to, it helps take away the, 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 the frustrations of s the most silly things when you realize, oh yeah, this is like one moment of one day of one life of one person of, you know, yeah. on a planet in a solar system, in a universe, we are part of a much broader thing. This is hilarious to find this frustrating. Yeah. And what a, what a gift it is to find this thing frustrating. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, like take it not a step further, but a step to the side. Like also, isn't it kind of cool that this frustrating thing is like letting me learn a lesson? Like there's something in here yes. that I should be thinking about so that if it is really frustrating, it doesn't happen again. Or if it's not really frustrating, like how do I treat it as not frustrating next time? Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, said uh, I listen to an Indian mystic named Sadhguru, and he he says that you know the present moment is inevitable. There is this moment happening right now. Now this moment happening right now. This these are inevitable moments. There's nothing we can change about them. Yeah, we can we can try to influence what happens tomorrow. We can't do anything about the past. This moment is absolutely inevitable. So if you and and the more you can embrace that, happiness is the only response to that. Or gratitude is the only response to that. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful. Hmm. You when you talked about legacy, for you it was really about uh, I don't want to say influence, but the, your impact on your kids. I think some people really think about you know name on a building type legacy or leaving a, a lasting mark in an industry or you know are those do those things occur to you as part of your work or is is that not really a thing. A little bit. I, I mean, so I, I use my kids as an example because I think it's actually a proxy for a positive footprint, right? Like, you know, if obviously I never want to disappoint my children. So like- That's a pretty that, good measuring stick. That, that, that's there, right? But it, for me, it's also like a proxy. Like, how would I disappoint them? Well, I'd disappoint them by being an asshole. I'd disappoint them by sort of like not being authentic for being a hypocrite, like all of that sort of stuff, right? So those are all things I think anybody wants to be known for anyway. So I just find that that's a really good way to bring home the importance of all of those little decisions about integrity and things that you make during the course of a day, right? You know, would future Sophie or future Elliot judge me for this, right? Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying I never do things that they, <laughs> they they won't judge me or they'll judge me for, like, you know, um, we all do. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's an easy proxy. You know, I, I think we all, to a degree, have a hard time getting over our egos and saying, like, you know, we want to be remembered for something. Um, for me, I think it's more important to be remembered to people that are really close to me, like my close friends and my family, than it is like sort of the broader world. I, I'd include my coworkers in that, um, in like the, the close friends and family, not in the broader world. Um, you know, I, I do have a little bit of ambition around changing the legal industry, which I find like a very frustrating business model generally. Um, so I think there's you know, yeah, I have some personal attachment to making some waves in the legal industry. We uh, we let everybody in the ownership door on day one. And when I say everybody, there's a big asterisk right now because it's every lawyer, because that's all under our regulation that's allowed to, the only people that are allowed to own law firms. So most law firms, you have to wait till year eight to year 12 before you're sort of invited into the partnership tent. Here we let people start buying in on day one so that they can build up equity and they sort of enjoy the growth as they go through. And we also have an exit program so that as lawyers leave, um, you know, there's a tail so that they're actually incented to make sure that the goodwill that they've helped build stays and that keeps the firm going. So with all of that, and you've talked about how important, I know how important your family is to you and, and you, you do an amazing job. At that, how do you balance those or how do you think about balancing those? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like that essentialism concept. Like a, there's actually a book called Essentialism, yeah. I think, that I yeah, read, read a while it. ago. And yeah. yeah, I think it influenced me a lot. But it's like doing my daily exercise and trying to whittle everything down into what's manageable and what's important, right? And so again, you know, of the do today, do later, delegate, left to right, push as much to the right-hand side of that sort of like ledger as I can. To identify my most important thing every day, to identify how I do my, like how I have my best day. And what that does is if I'm really conscious about it, it helps me alleviate the guilt as a people pleaser of not pleasing all of the people all the time by doing all of their stuff. It like gives me the perspective to say, no, it's important that I just do this. Um, yeah. So it, it's actually a lot of time and energy to focus on doing less. Like you work more to do less, which is kind of funny, but. I right. think that's the only way that I can make it work. Well, it's interesting because we we have all these things that we're passionate about in the working world and 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 as you know, that's kind of our life is to build things and to do things and to learn new things, but ultimately and I I can guess your answer to this, but what is most important to you? Yeah, what's most important to me? Um I mean my like my, like my gut re reaction is obviously to say my family, right? Like that's sort of like where where it begins and ends. Um, but I but I think it's 
part of a bigger picture. Like, you know, I think what's most important to me is leading a good life, right? And I think to me, like what gets wrapped into that is a lot of the things that we've talked about here. Like, you know, how do you make time for the people you need to make time for? How do you make sure you're having a net positive impact on the world? How do you make sure you're staying within your fences and sort of like living your values? So I'll, I'll, like all of that stuff. Um, and I have a hard time prioritizing within it, but I think it does boil down to this, like what's most important, leading a good life. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. For show notes and other info about the podcast, check out natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering the stress and anxiety you feel, definitely check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and my life, not only the quality of my work, but how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.